During the summer, we take a break from Luke, as many of you may know, and we spend some time in the Psalms. Last year, we did Messianic Psalms, and it was a wonderful way to walk through the Psalms and see Christ as He was being uh, displayed in these Psalms. This year, we are going through the life of David. Now, David wrote a lot of Psalms, but there were specific Psalms in the Psalter, there we go, that completely and directly correlate to certain events that are found in Scripture that we can get some insight as to what David felt like or how he reflected upon certain situations that he found himself in. During the summer, we have seen David go through a, quite a bit of stuff, some very wild things. We have seen him, by his faith in the Lord himself, destroy a giant, an oppressor upon Israel. But we've also seen a man who has also forgotten his house, forgotten the house that God had built, forgotten the throne that God had given him, and chose to use that to take something that did not belong to him. He took upon himself a woman that was given to another man, a woman that did not belong to him, he received for himself. We discovered what happened, what the heart of repentance looks like through that time. So this morning, as we dive into the text, we realize that is that during that time that Christ, or I'm sorry, not Christ, when God reflected back upon David for what David had done with Bathsheba, he said, hey, this is going to happen to you because of what you have done. Your life is going to be spared. The child will die. But the sword will never leave your house. This house that God had built, this house that God had established in David, the sword will not leave it because of what you have done. We're going to see very quickly how fast this sword came to the house of David. So this morning, I would invite you to stand if you are able for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning in Psalm 3. Psalm 3. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of the soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of, my, of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So before the situation with Bathsheba, David was singing a completely different song. After receiving the covenant with God, that David had peered and seen the glory of God fulfilling all of his promises... God makes a covenant with David. And right after this situation, this covenant made, he rejoices. He seems like he's in a, quite a different spot now. 
This seems very reminiscent of the situation that David found himself in whenever he was fleeing from Saul. Fleeing from another house. Fleeing from another king. But now he is fleeing once again. But this time it's coming from within his house. He's kind of in a desperate state. What we saw is God made a covenant with David that God would establish an everlasting throne. God would build a house and an eternal king will establish an eternal kingdom through David's line. David would reside home from war though. After receiving this and singing joy, the text literally says in 2 Samuel 13 that it was the time of the season when the kings would go out to war. David didn't go out to war. That was his first mistake. Rather than being with his men and being in the place where he was supposed to be, rather than going out and doing his duty as a king, he chose to reside back at home, finding himself in an unfavorable position. David would receive to himself a woman that was not his wife. He would see and appear with his eyes that she was beautiful and desired it. Sounds very familiar, does it not? In the garden, the fruit that hung upon the tree, the one that they were not to touch, Eve saw that it was desirable. She saw that it was something that she wanted. And so she received it. She had taken it. David, in the same manner. It was forbidden, and he desired it anyway. You're going to see today that this desire found within David is going to trickle down to his kids. So much so that it becomes worse than what David did. David would seek to cover his own sin. So this woman that was not his wife, he took her and that they beca- she became pregnant. So he sought to cover his own sin. In the same manner that Adam and Eve sought to cover themselves from their shame, David tried to do the same. He would lure Uriah home from war and say, Hey buddy, you've had a rough go of it. Why don't you take some time off? Go see your wife and you know, enjoy yourself for a little bit. Uriah, being a faithful soldier, did not do that. He actually resided at the door of David because he knew his men were out there fighting and dying. So David was like... <clears throat> Man, how am I going to get this to work? So he goes to Uriah and says, Hey, have much wine and enjoy yourself. And then go home and see your wife. He was trying to get Uriah drunk to go and sleep with his wife. But Uriah abstained. He did not indulge in wine and he did not indulge in his wife because it was a time of war. They were supposed to be engaged. They were supposed to be out doing the bidding that Lord is doing to clear out of Israel all that afflicted them. David was getting his rocks off. David was trying to cover his sin. David was not where he was supposed to be. David would have Uriah killed because a dead man tells no tales. He could claim that Uriah came home and got drunk and slept with his wife because Uriah wouldn't be there to testify against such. So he thought he'd dealt with the situation. Uriah's dead. Dead man tells no tales. I'm in the clear. The prophet Nathan would reveal the value of David's sin. Nathan would come forward and tell David a tale, a test, to see whether or not the position of wickedness had so engulfed David or not. 
to see if he could still see what justice and righteousness looked like. So he tells David a tale about a poor man who had one sheep, and this wicked traveler desired to come and take that one sheep for himself. David was furious. Put this man in jail. Get rid of this guy. He has done a wicked thing. Nathan's like, bro, you're the guy. You're the man. You're the traveler in the situation here. You had plenty. You had everything that you could possibly want. And yet you took the one thing that was not yours. Sound familiar? Nathan testifies to the value of David's sin. David would then repent for his actions. Now, in my opinion, it's because he got caught. But the reality is that sometimes you need to be caught. Sometimes the light needs to shine on those dark places in your heart to snap you out of the destruction that you find yourself in. Sometimes it takes somebody coming up and being like, bro, what are you doing? Sometimes you're going to get caught looking at things you're not supposed to look at as a measure of grace so that way you don't destroy yourself by it. It may hurt for the, for the moment that it happens, but it, in the ultimate end, it was good that you got caught so you'd be snatched from whatever it is you're engulfed in. David needed to be snatched out. He was, having, he was going down a depth of depravity that he should not have gone. We're talking about a man who saw the glories of God over and over and over again. A man who would go and deliver oppressed people from the Philippines. Uh, uh, not the Philippines. Philippi not even Philippians. Oh, my word. Philistines. There it is. Hey. Oh, man, it's been a morning. The Philistines. These people were so oppressed by these Philistines, and David, even though he was in the midst of his own anguish, would go and deliver these people because the Lord told him to. We're talking about a man who did and in in would abide in the Lord himself. All now taking depths of depravity taking steps, going deeper and deeper. First it was just a woman. Then it was pregnancy. Then he sought to manipulate a man. And then he came to the conclusion, like, this man's got to disappear. You could see the stepping down, that he was going down to the depths. And Nathan was there to snatch him out of it. Bro, do you know what you're doing? David realized the, the, he would repent of his actions. But the Lord rebukes David. He says, because you have done this, the sword will not leave your house. And the child, though you may live, the child will die. The child that was uh, placed in Bathsheba will die, but you will live. David is faced forward with consequences of his sins. The Lord, in the midst of repentance, did not say, hey, you know, that's I understand, you're bad. So nothing bad's going to happen to you now. He had to face up with what he did. And he's going to see the full force of it this week for what he has done. And that the sins of the father carried down to the sons in a greater magnitude. The child that was born in the womb of Bathsheba would die, but David would live. David would feel the consequences of his sins. David would mourn in hopes that the child would live, but he did not. David then would comfort his wife Bathsheba, who would bore Solomon hope in the midst of consequence. Even though they were in the midst of anguish and pain, 
Even though Bathsheba was the one who was wronged here, even though she was the one who lost the child because of David's actions, God would not leave Bathsheba alone. Bathsheba did not deserve what happened to her, so the Lord would bless her once again with what has been described as the wisest man to ever live on the earth outside of Christ himself. Bathsheba was given grace and mercy and a blessing from the Lord for that which was done to her. David, on the other hand, would feel the full brunt of what he had done. But then the reality of God, what God spoke about the house of David having the sword afflicting it, would become realized quickly afterwards. So let's dive into our text this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. So that way I'm not reading to you guys a full three chapters of 2 Samuel. We'd be here until 3 or 4 o'clock. Um, I'm going to hit the main points of these next few chapters. 2 Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, uh, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill. Because of his sister Tamar. That is a really strong desire. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend, whose name was Jonadab, and the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. So here we are. This is chapter 13. Chapter 12 was the whole Bathsheba incident. Chapter 13 is right after. The Lord said, hey, David, because of your sin, the sword's going to not leave your house. Well, it gets right to it. <laughs> the sons of David start having a problem. Amnon has an issue. David's sons begin to have problems. Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David... Uh, David's other son, Amnon, desired her dearly. The scriptures say that he desired her so badly that he would become ill with desire. Now that, that would throw a huge red flag. That somebody would be like, oh my gosh. They would be in such a deep despair of desire that they'd become ill by it. This is Amnon. This is not somebody of character. This is not somebody who is in a good spot. This is somebody who is possibly afflicted with a mental disability. Somebody who was afflicted in a harsh way, that his desire became so overwhelming, he became sick by it. Amnon and Jonadab would devise a plan for Amnon to have Tamar to himself. So they get together and start scheming. Golly, these dudes. The plan goes as such. Amnon would pretend to be ill, and he would request that Tamar would make him some cakes that he may eat from her hand. Amnon would lie in the bed as she did this. And then Amnon would have Tamar. He would be, he'd be, he'd pretend to be sick. Like, I'm in bed, I'm sick. Please have Tamar bring me some cakes that I might eat from her hand. It'd be well. Very manipulative person. But he also had an accomplice, Jonadab. And this is what happened. And to save the graphic nature of this story, Amnon took Tamar by force. Sins of the father. He took her by force. 
Tamar objects on the grounds to what had been done to her. So let's find out what she says. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She is pleading her case to Amnon for him to not do what he's getting ready to do. But Amnon does what he wants to anyway. After she says this, Amnon took Tamar for himself. But then, because of what Amnon has done... He hated her. He hated her. After he took advantage of her, he hated her and cast her out. David becomes absolutely furious over this situation. But Absalom, Tamar's brother, would take out his anger in a different way. 2 Samuel 13. Let's see what Absalom does. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away, is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robes that she wore. And she laid her, head on, laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother, do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Amnon's house or Absalom's, Absalom's house. When King David heard of all this, all these things, he was very angry. But look at how Absalom handles the situation. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom plots his revenge against Amnon, David's other son. Then Absalom tells his men in the midst of this plotting that he would lure Amnon out to have him killed. Then Absalom tells his men that when Amnon is merry with wine, he will kill Amnon. Does this seem all familiar here? The taking of a woman, the drinking of wine, being merry and then death and murder... This is all just being recapitulated right back in the house of David for what he himself had done. Then Absalom gets his revenge against Amnon. He reports back to David that Absalom was kill, or has killed all the sons of David. So the report that went back to David was this. Absalom killed everybody. All of your sons now gone. David wept greatly because of it. He was in the midst of despair. King David laments greatly over this. Jonadab clarifies that Amnon alone is dead. Like that's any better. They're like, no, no, King David, not everybody's dead. Just Amnon. He's still one of my sons. Chaos has come to the house of David. 
His daughter has been violated by one of his own sons. The brother of Tamar kills the other son of David. Then his son flees from Jerusalem. Absalom does. He flees. David has come to know very well that what God speaks will be. David's faith has been built to such a degree that when God speaks and makes his word known to David, it is sure to come about. It would be the faith that David has and the covenant made between him and God that would echo in his heart as turmoil and chaos comes to his house. But the situation gets worse. Absalom returns to Jerusalem, but not to be reconciled, but to a different end. So this is the question we're going to have this morning. This is the question we're going to have this morning. Where does our hope lie when our hearts are broken by the storms in our lives? Where does our hope lie? Because David's in a rough spot. David made some mistakes, sure. He felt the full brunt of the consequence of his sin, sure. But now his house is in chaos. Just utter chaos. You're going to find out here in a moment what Absalom desires to do to David. Right here. Absalom, Absalom acts and David flees. 2 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. Let's find out what Absalom does when he returns to Jerusalem. And after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. So Absalom is saying, Bro, uh, your king is too busy for you. There's no one going to hear your case. He doesn't care. But I do. Listen to what Absalom continues to say. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judging the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. What is going on? And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. David not only lost his house, his throne, but he's now lost the hearts of the people in Israel. All three of those things were given to him by God. Remember victory that God delivered and promised David that this would be a thing, that you're going to be anointed as king and you're going to take the throne. I will build a house for you and the throne will never be taken from you. And the people rejoiced because the Ark of the Covenant came in. People were praising and they loved David. All of it is now gone. Throne, house, people. Continuing on. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. 
and else, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Rather than being reconciled to his father, Absalom seeks to overthrow his father. Rather than dealing with his sins and the consequences they may follow, Absalom sought to remove the authority over him by replacing him. This sounds very familiar, does it not? Mankind has been doing this since its creation. Since the very beginning. Mankind had been given everything in the garden. Adam, go, subdue. This is your dominion. Everything in the garden is for you. Every fruit is yours, except that one. Don't take of it. Lest you die. Adam and Eve had everything. That one thing they couldn't have, they desired it. And they took it. Not because the simple fact that it was just another fruit. They sought to define for themselves their own authority. God had placed one commandment upon them. As a reminder that He is Creator... And Lord, that He has established order. And He has given them everything except for this one thing. Just don't, don't eat this one thing. Don't take upon yourselves this idea that you get to define what good and evil is. That's not your place. That's mine. And Eve thought it looked great. So Adam and Eve took and ate. So rather than dealing with their sin, rather than dealing with the fact that they had an authority over them, they're like, you know what? If we just get rid of the authority, then we can become gods. We can define for ourselves what right and wrong is. Absalom had King David to deal with. So Absalom, rather than going to the king and being reconciled and saying, you know what? I did this thing because of what happened to Tamar. I got vengeance and just dealt with the situation. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to overthrow David himself. Then I won't have any authority over me. And that's what Absalom desires to do. This sounds familiar. Humanity has been doing this since Adam and Eve left the garden. Rather than coming face to face on the reality of our sinful nature, mankind seeks to remove the authority from the equation. Let me show you how it is that we in America has become the place where we are today, where individuality has now become the reality by which people define good and evil. That you yourself get to define truth. Our culture has been so shifted so far apart that now you are told that you get to define what is right and true and good for you. First, mankind sought to overthrow God, overthrow their creator. You know what? We have an accountability and authority. Therefore, we're just going to overthrow God. We're going to take the fruit, become gods ourselves, and overthrow you. So they did. They took the fruit because there was no consequence. The serpent said, oh, I wouldn't die. So if I won't die, then why do I you know, need God to tell me that I'm going to die? So I'll just get rid of him. I'll become God myself. And humanity got a great fall. They tried to appeal to the gods during ancient times. 
They would pick up any god who would give them any sort of blessing, any type of rain, any type of crop. They would give their children just for some goodness to come their way. But then kings came about. They overthrew God, and so now kings were resonant. Kings resonated the authority over them that had been given to them by God. David was an image of this very thing. David was the establishment of the authority over the people by God. God has been establishing authority over us since the beginning. He has given us things that we need as representations to hold us accountable to His authority. So Absalom is now a new type where they would just overthrow kingdoms, overthrow kings. If I get rid of the kingdom, if I get just get rid of the government, if I get rid of the constitution, get rid of any semblance of God that is found within the authority over my head, I'm going to do it. So that's what they began doing in the 60s. Just to overthrow this reflection of authority. Because the Constitution held to particular values, did it not? That our country was established on some basis of a Judeo-Christian value system. Ethics and morals. An appeal to a greater God. As they established this nation. So let's get rid of the Constitution. Let's get rid of the government and their laws. So that we don't have to reflect on it anymore. Next is the home. It's the home. It's father and mother. You're not my authority anymore. You can't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. I don't need to listen to you. You're a hypocrite. You're not perfect. So I don't need to listen to you. The home becomes broken and fragmented. Children begin to rebel. You no longer listen to their parents. Cast off. Deciding for themselves what's good for them. In some states right now, the individual can know, go and get particular surgeries done without the parents even knowing. At the age of 12 in Washington, you can go and get a transition surgery without the parents' authority or their knowledge of it. That's where we get the individual now. The individual has become the point of authority. That even in the face of nature... I'm going to uprise against this. Nature in itself no longer seeks to define me. I define myself. I am God. This is the same old story. Absalom didn't want to deal with what he had to deal with. He had an authority over him. So he plotted against his own father to overthrow the throne to get rid of his consequence that he had to deal with because of the authority. He decided to desire for himself and decide for himself what he thinks is right and just. What an absurd world we live in. That a person can look at their own nature and say, no, that doesn't define me. That is absurd. Someone should call it Absalom. Absalom is so eager in his heart to become God king, priest, and ruler of his own being. Justice to his own causes and ruler over justice of all by his way. Listen to what Absalom does now. 
2 Samuel verse, or chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. King David and his whole household fled. He fled for fear of what Absalom would be willing to do. The house that God was going to build and the throne that would be established is under attack from within the house, and the desire of Absalom is the throne. This is where we find ourselves this morning. This is the context by which Psalm 3 comes about. David has lost the house, the throne, and the people. He's lost it all. This is where we can read Psalm 3, and we're going to in a moment to see the reflections because of this reality. David had seen all the wonders and steadfastness of God to fulfilling all his promises. David has, was no stranger to difficult situations. But what happens when the chaos enters the house? What happens uh, when it is felt on our own home? What happens when the sword comes knocking at the door? What happens when the storm starts making its way into our boat? Number two, song of salvation. Song of salvation. With that heavy background in your mind, let's go through Psalm 3 again. Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. There are five lessons, five elements that are found within this psalm. A reflection of the soul of one who has lost it all. One who had it all and lost it all. He had been given everything and he made a mistake. And the depth of his depravity continued down a road and look at where he is now because of his own sin. Now he seeks salvation because he had lost it all. So there's five lessons that are found in this psalm of salvation that we could pray in the midst of our own, in the midst of our own hardships. One is the recognition of affliction. The recognition of affliction. There is a grace in coming to understanding the reality that you are facing. Rather than denying what you are experiencing, recognize what is actually happening. Is it this? Is this a consequence of sin in my life? Is what I'm experiencing now, this anguish that I found myself in, is this the consequence by which I myself have placed myself? Did I cause this? Is what I'm experiencing a wake-up call to the way I'm living my life? Or is this a storm that has come upon me unprovoked? 
Is there a reason within, within what I'm experiencing that should beckon to me in faith? What is God showing me in the midst of this storm? David found himself back out into the wilderness, back out running away because he'd lost all that God had given to him. There are two things found in this situation for David. One is the consequences of his actions. They just feeling the full brunt of those consequences. Those things that he did to Bathsheba and Uriah are being felt in his own home by his own sons. They're exhibiting the exact same characteristics. But, but, sometimes we need to be called out to the wilderness to be reminded of what we had actually gained in God. Sometimes we need to feel the pressure of the consequences of our sin to put us in a place of repentance. Sometimes we need to be brought to our knees so that we know by what we actually stand upon. The first point is the recognition of our affliction. Because David, even though he was feeling the full brunt of his own consequence of actions, his own actions, there's still hope found. There's still promises found. There's still grace and mercy and love found because of the promises that were there. Number two. Number two. The affliction in the light of God. The affliction in the light of God. David has been in this place before. He has been pursued before. He has been surrounded by enemies before. If for a moment David realizes that what he is experiencing now is not new, but has faith in what he knows to be true. He knows to be true. If for a moment David needs to realize that what he is experiencing now is not new. He was chased by Saul. He was already in caves. He was already fleeing for his life. And yet through all of it, the Lord still established his promises. David needed to be brought back out to be reminded of what God actually does. That he is a fulfiller of his word, regardless of Saul or David. Is the storm and chaos in your life now something that you have experienced before? Has God shown his glory in the midst of that situation? Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Or is this something new? Has the sword that has come to your door something you have never been through before? What has God brought you through before? Has He delivered you from storm and sword before? Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Listen to the words of Jesus to His own disciples regarding our life in the midst of these situations. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you, you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value, more, of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? That what you're experiencing, the hardships that you go through, if you view it in light of God, are nothing. That if you honestly believe that Christ could deliver you from death itself, what affliction could come upon you? Whoa, it was going to happen someday. What affliction that could come upon you can actually take you from that hand? 
Nothing. What are you worried about continuing on? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious. View the affliction in light of God. Number three, faith is built in hope. Faith is built in hope. David has been through some stuff, and yet he still lives. He still lives. He breathes, he sleeps, he wakes up. David has a testimony that many have sought his life, and yet he continues to live by the hand of God that carries him. The Lord sustains him. If God is able to sustain me through death, uh, through death, though death has come to me many times, what do I have to fear? What does David actually have to fear? He has been face to face with it many times. In the same manner, if God is sovereign and sustaining us in life, what is there to cause worry? Each breath we receive, every single beat of our hearts of every day is a sovereign grace and a will of God. What can man really do when we are in the one who sustains in life? Psalm 91. This is absolutely beautiful. The response to the affliction of the finality of man is Psalm 91. Because if our dwelling place is with the Lord Most High, nothing can come against us. Verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. For he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Each one of those things does bring destruction to the body. But fear not the one who can destroy the body. So if you've been delivered from death in Christ Jesus, what can this world actually do to you? You mean destroy the tent? Yeah, sure. But in the midst of this, in the midst of faith, David still has, number four, a plea for deliverance. A plea for deliverance. Once our faith is built up in the glory of God in our lives, even in the recognition of our distresses, we cry to the one who is able to save. 
We cry out to the one who defeats our enemies and sustains us in life, the one in whom we dwell, the eternal kingdom made by the eternal King Jesus Christ, is able to deliver us from pestilence, sword, storm, illness, and sin. If he defeated death to offer us eternal life, what is there uh, what is there he is not able to deliver us from? O oh, death, where is thy sting? The plea for deliverance, first Corinthians fifteen. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The plea for deliverance is the recognition of the one who delivers. The plea from deliverance is the one who goes to the place to one who can actually save you. David had this recognition. He has been saved many times. So he knew exactly where to go. And lastly, a recognition of salvation's answering call. A recognition of salvation's answering call. After the recognition of affliction, the reality of God in light of that affliction, the faith that has been built in hope, and the plea for deliverance, we acknowledge in whom our salvation ultimately lies. These same words would be uttered by the prophet Jonah, who in the belly of a great fish was found to be there by his own rebellion. The depths have swallowed him up, even though at his own doing, and yet... Even he knew where salvation ultimately belonged. And this is the very last phrase of Psalm 3 where he said, Salvation belongs to the Lord. No matter if the sword or storm that we are experiencing in our lives, the eternal hope and salvation, the one who is able to work outside the confines of nature, outside of what makes sense, and outside of our expectations can deliver us even from death itself. What is too hard for the Lord of salvation? David, even though his throne, which had been given to him by the Lord himself, was in the distance and he found himself in the wilderness again, he knew where to run. Sometimes we need some time in the wilderness to be reminded of all that we have bore witness to and believe in by faith. Sometimes we are tossed about by the storm so we recognize who it is that is able to calm the storm. Number three, a firm foundation. A firm foundation. David found himself on shaky ground. He had it. The throne, the kingdom, it was all there. Promises of God given to him. But because of his sin, he lost it. But does that nullify the promises of God? Does David's sin actually nullify what God has said? Absolutely not. No man can overthrow the Lord himself when he speaks. He spoke creation into existence. He speaks your name and salvation. So what can man actually do? It's in the midst of David's sin, David realizes to which, where his victory comes from. Who is going to reestablish it even though David broke it? This is the quest of the reality of the Garden of Eden. Mankind broke communion with God. 
Mankind broke nature. Mankind broke this communion and covenant with God that he gave us everything, that we had lost it all. Our own sin separates us from God. Our own sin has cast us down as enemies. Our own sin has cut us off from communion and everlasting relationship with God. But that doesn't nullify the promises of God. Because even in the midst of Adam and Eve's own sin, God made a promise that the seed of the woman would come to crush the serpent's head. Even from the beginning, God made a promise. Even in David's own covenant promise, he reveals his uh, Messiah in the midst of it. So just because David sinned didn't mean everything else was all lost. David needed to lose so that way he realized what he actually gained. Firm foundation. David, though his house and throne were lost, needed to be reminded who provided the house and the throne and the promise that the Lord had made to him regarding those things. The Lord rebuked David for his sin, and yes, the sword has indeed come to his house. But does that mean that all the other promises are null and void? No. David did not build that house, and David is not able to break that house. God is the builder of that house and throne. So the question we should be asking ourselves this morning is, who is our house built upon? If our houses are built by our own hands and our own strength and our own authority, then it could be destroyed by those things. If we defined for ourselves and built for ourselves our own house, calling ourselves God, it would be us who could bring its destruction to. David would see this full force. He destroyed it. He lost it all. We may build a house of sand with our own strength and hands. And while there is no storm, it'll stand. Have you ever built a sand castle on the beach? As long as the water stays away from it, it looks awesome. It'll stand up. It'll hold its form. But the minute the water touches it, what does it do? It starts falling apart. That is the illusion that we have if we think that we could build this life, that we could create our own kingdom, we're creating an illusion out of sand. We're like, man, look at all the things that I have built for myself. Look how grandiose the sand castle is. My own wisdom and knowledge and strength built something awesome. But then storms come. Things happen. You mess up. Someone gets sick. Storm comes. And what does that castle begin to do? It starts falling apart. Because there's nothing holding it. Nothing keeping it up. Because you built it. If our houses are built by the hands of our own strength, then it can be destroyed by those same hands and strength. We may build a house of sand with our own strength and hands, and while there is no storm, it will stand. But the moment the storms come... Uh, all that our hands and strength built will come tumbling down. David needed to see who the builder of the house was. And we need to be reminded of whom our house is built. And the only way to know is when the storms come. Matthew chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who bears 
these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great the fall of it. The only way to know if your house is going to stand or not is if there's a storm there. You're not going to know in the midst of nice sunny weather and a lack of affliction if your house is going to withstand that which comes your way. Peter himself needed to know this because it would be upon that rock that the church would become built. Isn't that interesting? Let's find out what happened to Peter, the storm that came his way. Jesus never said that storms would not come. Jesus allows the storms that you may see the glory of his power. Let's read what happens to Peter. Matthew chapter 14, 22. Immediately he made the disciples go into the boat and go on before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, let's get this straight. Jesus himself sent his disciples into the place where the storm was going to happen. Is that a hard thing to think about? That Jesus sent his disciples ahead knowing what was going to happen to them. He went around to pray. Verse 2. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The Lord sent his disciples ahead into the storm. But watch what Jesus does in the midst of it. I'm sure you're very aware. Very aware. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, on top of it. On top of the chaos, on top of everything that was going on, he walked on top of it. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! Not going to lie, if I saw some dude walking on top of the ocean in the midst of a heavy storm, I probably would have said the same thing. I'm not going to lie. They didn't know what was happening. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. They were experiencing extreme turmoil. A storm has come upon them, tossing them about, fearing for their lives. And Peter wanted some assurance in the midst of this storm that he was experiencing that Jesus was actually the one out there. That Jesus was going to be the one that helps keep them up top. He's going to be the one who is able to keep them above the chaos. So Peter says what? Oh, if that's you, bid me to come out. Bid me to come out. That is faith. The rest of the men stayed in the boat. Feared for their lives. Feared for what was going to happen to them in the midst of this storm. Peter, the rock by which the church is built on, says, you know what, this affliction is happening to me. I want assurance. I want assurance. I want to have faith to be able to know that whenever storms come, I can stand upon it. Because Peter's going to experience a lot of it. So what does he do? Bid me to come out. And he does. But when he saw the wind and was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried aloud, Lord, save me. This is David right now. 
There is a massive storm happening in his house. A lot of chaos, a lot of unsurety, and he's sinking. Is that you this morning? Is there storms in your life right now? Are there things happening right now that you feel like the Lord has sent you into? Why would he let this happen to me? This is too hard for me. I'm sinking. The loudness of the waves, the claps of the thunder, the depth of the chaos are all scary sometimes. Peter needs something to stand on. David needs something to stand on. They needed a firm foundation to keep them above it all. They need to be reminded of one who has established the foundation of the earth, who keeps it afloat and yet can sustain you in the midst of your own storms. Because what happens to Peter begins to sink. And what does Jesus do? Does he just let him drown and be like, oh, bro, your faith is too little? Sorry. No. Even in the midst of his own anguish and pain, in the midst of his own doubt, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had got out of the boat, the wind ceased. Jesus brought him back up in the doubt. Didn't let him get consumed by it. So this morning, if you're in that place, if you feel like you're the one sinking, Jesus is not going to let you get consumed by your anxiety, consumed by your worry, consumed by your depression for what you're experiencing, because what you're experiencing is real, and it's hard, and it's loud, and it is a challenge. Storms scare, but he's not going to let you get consumed by it, even in your doubt. Whenever you plea out, salvation comes from the Lord, you're established. He will pick you up. And the best part about this is whenever that faith, that seeking of salvation came, Jesus ceased the winds. Done. All right. That was too much. Done. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus sent the disciples into, the, into what would become the storm. Then when it was done, he calms the storm. David is in the midst of the storm. God has allowed David to experience what he is experiencing as a consequence of his sin, but David would not be consumed by it. God was the builder, and no man can destroy it. We too have a house and city, not built with human hands, but whose builder is God. In the hall of faith, Men and women endured great hardships, but there was faith, um, but their faith was in God, the builder of something greater than man can fathom. Hebrews 11. We'll end with this. These all died. The hall of faith. Abraham, Moses, Enoch. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them afar and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land for which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. At the very end, we realize that storms are going to come your way, and faith is that which establishes you and keeps you above it all. Because the chapter closes like this. Hebrews 11, the closing. And what shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies in flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. He is established. The promises did get fulfilled. Despite David's sin, despite David, what David had done, Christ sits upon his throne. Eternally established, eternal kingdom. That is, what, that is that which is solid to which we can stand upon. A firm foundation. So in closing, the words are a closing song. Christ is my firm foundation. The rock on which I stand. When everything around me is shaken, I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus. Because He's never let me down. He's faithful through generations. So why would He fail me now? He won't. I've still got joy in chaos. I've got peace that makes no sense. I won't be going under. I'm not held by my own strength because I've built my life on Jesus. He's never let me down. He's faithful through every season. So why would he fail now? He won't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of salvation. You are the Lord of salvation. You are the one to whom we turn in the midst of our own destruction, in the midst of our own anguish. Because whenever we seek solace in ourselves, it does not last. But you have built a greater house, a stronger foundation. Lord, I ask that this morning, if there are those who have found themselves in the wilderness, feeling that they've lost it all, that you be with them in the midst of that wilderness, that you answer the cries and pleas of their hearts, that you would come and comfort them, bring peace to their anguish, bring them upon the chaos that they find themselves in, set them strong in faith, or deliver them from the storm altogether, that you have the power to cause that which is they're experiencing to cease. So we ask, Lord, that you deliver them.
this morning, Lord, remind us how good the gospel is. Remind us that you have set the foundation by which we stand, that even in the face of death, there is no victory in it. That you have robbed death of its victory. That even in the midst of our own destruction, our own death, we can stand upon the rock of Christ by faith who brings life. Lord, hear our cries. Lift our heads when they are drooping, when they are cast down. Establish hope in your salvation. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.